when you watch people just have more and more achievement and success, but it's all because of their service to others. That's a lot of what Mike Wendler's about, an amazing amount of what Jackie Spear is about. Jackie, you're incredible, and as the granddaughter, daughter, sister-in-law, wife and mother of veterans, I want to say that she has fought many fights for our veterans and their families. And the reason I'm here tonight is because I want us to remember, you know, you talked earlier, Congresswoman, about how we had so many veterans who ended up homeless. I spent most of my career in San Francisco PD policing in the Tenderloin. Why? It was exciting policing. It was the most needed policing that we had. It was the most vulnerable, most predatory, and most, those most at risk and in need. But I, we learned a powerful lesson there. And that was that a lot of those laying in the gutter, laying in their own stench, were actually some of our decorated veterans who had served so honorably. And you know what that taught our officers? That taught our officers that we can never assume, like you said, that there are those who haven't laid down and given a really incredible measure to serve and protect our country, who need our help more than ever. We did not welcome home the Vietnam veterans the way we should have, and a lot of those in the Tenderloin ended up being Vietnam veterans. But think about it now. It's an all-volunteer force, and that means that each of those veterans that you talked about, the, especially these post-9-11 veterans who have served an average of three to four deployments to active war theaters each have in large part returned to us in our communities. And I am really thrilled that we are taking the time tonight to recognize, to honor, to support, and really question and challenge ourselves to what we can do more of. I wanna thank the Elks for standing up strong when we said we wanted to do this, a large part of the Elks, and I'm looking at some of them tonight, are law enforcement and veterans. I also wanna say that San Mateo was one of the few communities during the Vietnam War that held parades each and every year for those returning veterans and those in active duty, and it doesn't stop there. In fact, next Tuesday, I see our incoming mayor here, Lisa Diaz-Nash, I think it's next Tuesday at 11, we are gonna break ground on our memorial to those who have served in the military, police, and fire, and uh, paramedic National Guard, I believe. It's gonna be beautiful, they've raised uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars for it. Yes, there's still time to donate, and um, it is really a small measure. But you know, when my son deployed, I would take extra time with my daughter-in-law, who had the three grandkids, was a nurse, was going to continuing education, was really trying to just make do each time Jess deployed to uh, Afghanistan or Kurdistan or wherever he was going. And one time there was a bomb in Kerbil. And I think my son was the only one who followed the orders not to call home and say you're okay. Because you can't do that because you're giving up intelligence. But he was the only one probably that didn't at least put a little note in. 
And so I sat there, I actually flew down and sat there with Tanisha, so let's not forget the families and the service. My three grandkids could not be prouder. And in fact, my brick is going to say that exact quote that I bought for the memorial in, in Central Park in San Mateo. The land of the free because of the brave. And so I want to just end by saying I'm a proud uh, military first employer in each and every uh, agency that I've been with because who else is going to have and be willing like our law enforcement officers to risk it all to give up that final measure as Winston Churchill used to say for people they did not know for justice and for freedom. And so when you start to think about the incredible dedication to duty and to rising above, to being a part of something greater than themselves, service above selves, dedication to the mission and loyalty to the team, that's what you're gonna find in our veterans. And one of them is up here, and because he'll never say it, because somehow the military are very humble. I don't know that all us cops are humble. I'm CRT fear Ed Barberini. We have to have a little bit of ego to withstand some of the stuff we see. But for Mikhail Venikoff, Army Ranger 2006, I'll never forget the day my recruiting sergeant, Kevin Raffelli, came into my office and I thought he had just fallen in love. He was smitten. And he goes, Chief, do you know? that we just got an application from the Army Ranger 2006. He's a beast. And that was Mikhail Benikoff, who actually was a bit of a beast. He actually uh, has done a lot of incredible things, including cage fighting or wrestling, which I don't understand exactly what that is. But uh, he has a big following uh, up in Sacramento in his community. But let me tell you just one thing, because it's really compelling. We had an officer who uh, was near death. He had worked a uh, long shift, 12 hours. He also had been to court. He's coming home. Do you know where our officers live? Some of them live in Lathrop and out in the American Valley and other places. I don't even know where they are. But Lathrop is at 5 and 205. And that's where he commuted home to every night to afford a house and a school and all that stuff for his family. And he uh, overturned. He fell asleep on the and right at that junction, and um, long story short, uh, he was taken to the uh, hospital that was right there, thankfully, and he lost a leg. So he's an amputee, and the whole department, and his brother and his sister in Burlingame, it was a big law enforcement family, and we adored them. And uh, they were part of our incredible Tongan community. And so our department was devastated and none of us knew exactly what to do. We knew that that was probably a career-ending injury. You know who knew exactly what to do? Mikhail Venikoff, Army Ranger, 2006. He went to the hospital. He said, this is not the end of your life. This is the beginning of the next stage of your life. He worked with him and the family over the next year, year and a half through getting the prosthetic. He took him back to Walter Reed, I believe, to work on some of the special equipment reserved for a veterans injured in the line of duty. And guess what? Mikhail Venikoff brought this officer back to full duty. The first amputee officer 
full duty in the state of California. I saw him the other day. He's probably more fit than his brother and sister combined, but this is what Mikhail Venikov just did on his own time because that's what they do. So next time you get to hire someone or you look to support someone or some cause, be thinking about the selfless call to service, how admirable and noble it is, and be thankful for it. So thank you all for being here and being a part of this. Thank you for why we were so excited to be here in San Mateo. This town hall series is all about the post 9-11 veteran generation. It's about a wide group of people that served over a very long period of time, over two decades. And this is a generation of veterans that is um, in some ways, you know, more different than they are alike. Um, unlike, you know, the Vietnam generation of the Korean War, World War II, and even us on this panel, we all didn't serve in the same ways, in the same places, even at the same time. And yet, we're here today because I actually think there's something that brings all of this generation together. And I think it is that desire to serve, to give back. Um, and I think it makes, it's not unique in this generation, but it is the unique thing that brings this generation together. So, what I want to do today, why we're all here, few things. The first is I, I, I want to help tell these veterans stories. And um, each one of the people sitting here um, decided to serve and volunteer in a force when they know they could serve in combat. And the other thing that I want to do is I want to highlight to you the similarities, not just between these people, but between them and you. I, I, we were talking earlier, um, and Cong Congressman Spear brought up that only 7% have served. And I think sometimes that makes us feel like there's a real difference, a, a gulf between military, veterans, and civilians. And what we want to highlight today is that that may be a really bad or small percentage, but these people up here are the people in your community. They're your neighbors. They're your teachers, your firefighters, your policemen, your judges. These veterans came back, and instead of being separate from the civilian communities they came from, they came back to lead inside those communities. And so a lot of what I want to do today is I hope that when you leave, you hear their story, but you also say, wow, I have a lot in common with that person. Um, and that way we realize that we're not all doing this kind of democracy thing in separate worlds, but all together. So let me give you a brief introduction of our extraordinary panelists. I'm going to start with Kathy. Uh, Kathy is a science educator and Navy veteran. Um, she went to this little place called Harvard um, and then served as, as a surface warfare officer. And for those of you who don't speak Navy, that means that you know, I'm an Air Force veteran. She wrote a boat. She knows how to drive a ship. Sorry. Um, <laughs> She then uh, transitioned to meteorology and oceanography um, and was served in the Navy Reserves. Um, and really close to my heart, uh, she served as a science educator uh, and a public school teacher for uh, about a decade, um, which is an extraordinary calling to service. 
Uh, Justin sitting right next to me is a firefighter, a uh, firefighter of the Santa Clara County Fire Department, um, but also a member of the 23rd Marine Regiment Marine Corps Forces Reserves. So uh, I made a mistake on this panel. It's a lot of Marines. I did not mean to do that. I just want to warn you all. I'll try and hold it down as a sole Air Force person. <laughs> okay, uh, Mikhail, thank God you're not a Marine. <laughs> but um, perhaps, perhaps more um, impressive, uh, served in the 2nd Army Ranger Battalion, and now serve here in the San Mateo Police Department. Um, and Mikhail has done extraordinary things now, returning to civilian life. He founded Ranger Road, which is a nonprofit that helps veterans transition from the military into the civilian world. Uh, and the Honorable Michael Wendler, now I will say in true Hoover tradition, we're gonna all go by first names here, but the Honorable Michael Wendler is a, a judge here in San Mateo, a San Mateo Superior Court judge, uh, but also a colonel in the Marine Corps Reserves. Um, and served first in the active duty and then transitioned in the reserves as early as 2004. Um, so we have you know, four reservists sitting up here too. So um, I wanna go right into the stories and start talking about what you guys have, have done in your impressive careers. And Mikhail, I wanna start with you. Because your journey is, I think, this like extraordinary American, uh, American story. It is the story of coming to the United States um, from far away, and then not only you know kind of succeeding in America, but then going off and fighting for America as your country. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that journey all the way from Kazakhstan to becoming a U.S. Army Ranger. Very good. Is the mic on? You guys can hear me. All right. Um, how much time do I have? <laughs> uh, so, uh, thank you for the introduction. My name is Mikhail. I, I work as a police officer here in San Mateo. Um, uh, I'll start from the very beginning. I immigrated to America when I was a little kid, uh, born in Kazakhstan. You guys, most of you guys, or maybe some of you guys have seen Borat. Uh, that's, that's my country, that's where I was born. Um, my dad served in the Russian military at that time. Special, special Forces, it was uh, Spetsnaz, which is their variation of uh, Special Forces in, in the former Soviet Union. Uh, immigrated from there, we, we moved, uh, because my dad's work, we moved to Ukraine, which uh, you guys have heard, Mariupol. Mariupol, uh, a lot of my family still live there. Um, we moved there, and then ultimately, we, were, we had the opportunity to come to America, and that was at the age of eight. We, 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 family moved over to uh, Sacramento area and uh, we had the opportunity to come and uh, came with nothing um, not speaking any any English uh, not knowing much of anything really and we were fortunate we had the opportunity to come a church there uh, accepted us uh, gave us kind of some um, guidance and uh, financially assisted us in, in uh, um, allowing for teaching my dad what he needed to do, get a job, and uh, ultimately, you know, um, went to school. And uh, from there, uh, I decided I wanted to get into sports. I uh, um, 
got into wrestling. I uh, did well in wrestling. My dad brought me up uh, a little bit on a tougher side. And so um, a lot of push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, running, and that sort of thing. And so I, uh, I got into wrestling. I enjoyed wrestling because it was a one-on-one uh, -on -one type of uh, sport. And um, I like I liked that because I didn't have to rely on other individuals. I like to be able to, if I make a mistake, or if I don't train hard enough, then that's on me, it's not on my team. So wrestling really uh, stood out for me. So I started wrestling, did well, went to regional nationals, and uh, did, uh, did well in wrestling. Um, and so, um, living in Sacramento, um, ultimately I had the opportunity to join the military, and I could get into that a little bit, but in essence, it's uh, some of the stuff that you guys will hear now, uh, some of the individuals here, I'm sure. Everybody joins the military for different reasons. Uh, my reason was uh, a little unique. Um, like I mentioned, I, I'm an immigrant. Uh, I came to America with nothing, and uh, we had the opportunity to become somebody. All, my sisters are all nurses, other than one. My, my younger brother, he works for the San Mateo uh, Sheriff's Department. He's a deputy there. And so we um, had the opportunity to come to America and become somebody. And uh, what I mean by that is not every country or no country other than America gives you that opportunity. If you're born into wealth, you're gonna be a wealthy individual. Uh, here in America, you work hard, go to school, do the right things, educate yourself and surround yourself with good people. Uh, you know, the, the sky's the limit. And so I wanted to give back. Uh, I wanted to um, uh, serve in the military. Um, obviously my dad had, had something to say about that just because he, he served as well, he understands the um, maybe things that you would need to expect when you're joining the military. Now I had no idea what a ranger was, I just wanted to join the military and serve. I joined the military, signed up, and uh, went through infantry, basic training, while in basic I stood out. I did uh, well on the physical aspect of things. I've always been physically gifted, and I uh, had the opportunity to um, Little airborne school in airborne school, some cool guys came over with uh, tan berets and they were all fit. And um, they asked, Hey, who wants to volunteer to be a ranger? No idea what a ranger was, I just know a park ranger at that time. And um, the guys looked well and they spoke well and they showed us some of the cool things that they did. And so I volunteered. Um, like it was mentioned before in America, you volunteer and you sign up and you, you serve. So I, I joined the uh, I had the opportunity to try out for the Ranger Battalion. It's a special ops unit um, that you have to try out for. Um, ultimately, I succeeded, I did well. I was a soldier of the cycle there, and then I ultimately became a Ranger. Some of you guys may have heard of a gentleman by the name of Pat Tillman. Pat Tillman uh, was a second Ranger Battalion uh, gentleman who served in my battalion uh, where, where I ultimately ended up in Fort Lewis. Um, the military was great for me. Uh, you know, the stars aligned for me. Um, I had the opportunity to serve alongside um, a lot of great individuals. Uh, learned a lot, seen a lot. Um, obviously, made, didn't, well, it's not obvious, but did make some mistakes. Um, but learned from those mistakes. And in 2006, I had the opportunity to compete in the best ranger competition, which is a Competition. It's a leadership course, uh, ranger school, and then you go and you compete in the best ranger competition. And again, the stars aligned for me, and I, I ended up winning that competition with my partner. 
Um, unfortunately, um, at the same time when I was uh, serving, obviously there's incidences that came up where um, some of our men and women, um, in, my, in my situation as a ranger, it was all, all men in, in our battalion, uh, didn't make it back. And so um, they were killed in action. And so there are different things, and there were different things that we had to address and um, learn from. And as long as we had the support of our leadership, our superiors, everything seemed to be going well. So ultimately, I got out of the military and uh, came to Sacramento, uh, went through the um, academy, became a police officer, and as, at one point, um, I had a situation that came up and a lot of veterans would reach out to me and ask uh, for advice or assistance in some of the things that they were going through, such as mental health, uh, physical disabilities, and things of that nature. And at that point, and I can elaborate a little bit more, but I started Ranger Road. Ranger Road is a veteran nonprofit organization geared around for uh, assisting veterans and their families with various types of disabilities. Amputees, guys and gals that are paralyzed, that may be going through difficult times, whether it be you know housing, um, uh, PTSD type situations. And there's a lot of things that come up as a veteran and I'm sure you know we can talk about these things as not veterans have different situations, things that they have to be that have to be addressed. But since we're talking about veterans, and I am a veteran, I'm able to kind of uh, assist and work with these veterans in a different way. And what Range Road does is we provide those assistances through sports and outdoor activities, fishing, hunting, scuba diving, skydiving, car racing, and all of our programs are outfitted with. Uh, uh, are capable to assist those with different disabilities. Whether they're paralyzed, we have a race car. It's outfitted with hand controls and guys and girls that are disabled are able to get in the car and race. And uh, hunting, fishing. In fact, I'm taking a red-eye flight uh, after this to Texas. We have a group of disabled vets that are uh, hunting uh, deer. And so, in, in summary, uh, all of those things are important and, um, because folks that are going through difficult times have different needs and different ways of coping with those, maybe, uh, lack of better terms, uh, those issues. And so me being a veteran, going through some of those things, I'm able to uh, relate and help and push them in the right direction. Well, I wanna go back to the, back to the beginning um, because you were inspired by your father. Um, Mike, your father also had a really large influence on your decision to serve, and he's kind of a legend here in San Mateo. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the role that your dad and your family play, played in inspiring your military service? Sure, and, and as I see the veterans on the stage and other veterans in the audience, before I get to my dad, because it does relate to him, I'm the old man up here, you know. I did serve post 9-11, but I signed up during peacetime. And these individuals signed up knowing they were going to deploy that's a big difference. And I think about my dad, retired as a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps, very proud of his Marine Corps service. He took his commission in the middle of Vietnam, and he knew he was going to go to Vietnam. And he did serve a year in Vietnam. And after the war, uh, my parents were in the East Coast. My dad was stationed at Treasure Island in San Francisco. And they had orders to Washington, D.C. They had fallen in love with San Francisco, so they decided to uh, transition to the reserves. 
My dad uh, interviewed at the DA's office here in San Mateo County solely for the interview experience. Uh, well, 32 years later, um, until his untimely passing from cancer, he served as a deputy DA in San Mateo County, but he stayed in the reserves. And I always watched him every summer put on that uniform and go serve in the Marine Corps. And I remember exactly where I was in South City as a little kid when he was away on his two weeks. And my mom told my brother and I that your dad's a lot like who he is because of the Marine Corps, obviously in a positive way. My entire life, I never saw my dad want to compromise his integrity. So my brother joined the Marine Corps after college, about four or five years younger than my brother. And I decided to join the Marine Corps after I graduated UC Davis. So, it was that example, that desire to serve your country and to follow my father's footsteps is one of the main reasons I joined the Now Mike, your, your path was active duty and then reserves, which is similar to Kathy and I. And, but Justin, your pathway is actually a little different. I think it's important for people to know, you can actually commission straight to the reserves. So talk to me a little about that. Why did you decide to join the reserves and why the Marines? Sure, uh, good evening everyone. Um, so, I guess the way to start that question is, I had graduated college, um, I graduated with a criminal justice degree, and my path at that point um, was really to start looking for law enforcement, but I wanted to challenge. Uh, the degree was challenging, but uh, I'd always kind of had that sort of uh, military mindset. Uh, grandfathers served, cousins served, and I wanted to serve. Right before I graduated college, I had made a decision to enlist in the Marine Corps. Um, I enlisted because I wanted that challenge. I knew it was going to be Marine Corps specifically for me. Uh, I knew it was going to be mentally challenging. Uh, I knew it was going to be physically challenging. And uh, I knew that I'd be better for it. I knew that I could serve uh, while getting better as a, as a person. Um, so I enlisted, uh, and I was actually with Echo Company, uh, 2nd Battalion, 23rd Marines here in San Bruno. Uh, in 2009 to 2012, uh, 2011. Uh, and then at that point, I chose to go the officer route. So that's when I um, went back to the officer selection officer in San Jose uh, and worked through my own package uh, to become a Marine Corps officer. Um, and then at 2011 and on is uh, when I started my journey in the officer court. Um, and to answer your question, yeah, it was really um, one that was initially, you know, it was that drive. Uh, from my family and uh, my extended family and immediate family, um, and really that, that drive to serve. And that's one of the things I wanna highlight here is how many different pathways there are to military service. Um, Kathy, in, in many ways, you're the uh, statistical outlier in your pathway because the, um, and not just because you're the, so brilliant, um, but because statistically, the number one predictor of joining the military is that you had a family member or close kind of uh, friend, somebody very, very close in your family, um, and that is the number one predictor about um, whether or not you decide to serve. But you didn't have anyone in your like immediate family that had served, so why did you join? What was your pathway? Oh, hi, everyone. So I'm listening to the other panelists, and I think that my story actually has a lot in common with all three of you. you know, Justin, as you were just saying about just kind of having this intrinsic desire to serve. I, I had, though my parents didn't serve, my grandparents didn't serve, um, my parents raised me with sense of patriotism, desire, desire to serve. Uh, ironically, I, I'm the teacher up here. I, when I was in high school, I thought, 
know, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but I definitely don't want to be a teacher because both my parents were teachers and you know, look at me now. Um, so I didn't know, I didn't know what it was, but I did want to serve. And uh, I have to admit, though, it was really a pragmatic decision because I, along the way, in this, I have no military background, but kind of want to serve. Let's figure out how to do it. I found out about this thing called ROTC, which gives you a, a full ride scholarship to college. I knew I wanted to go to college. I didn't want to serve. I'm like, hmm, full scholarship. Don't know what I want to do when I grow up, but also a guaranteed job afterwards. Um, kind of made sense. I was, 9-11 happened when I was a senior in high school. I had already applied to ROTC, so I already knew I wanted to serve before 9-11. That wasn't necessarily what prompted it. Um, but I, I picked the Navy largely, I admit, because as Mike was saying about joining during, during peacetime, um, I knew I was joining during wartime, but I didn't want to die. And I also wanted to live near water on the coast. You know, California, I was stationed in Washington State in California, and that's, that sounded cool to me from uh, West Hartford, Connecticut. Um, so really it was a combination of factors, but it, it wasn't just from this drive to serve. It was, it just made sense, you know, college, job, figure out what I want to do while I go on some, some pretty fun adventures. Well, so, Kathy, you joined right after September 11. Joined after September 11. Until you joined after September 11th, right? Me too. Shortly after. Mike, you joined before, but something, you have a pretty remarkable story. Because Mike, you were the, you and maybe, maybe Jim Mattis, the only people I know who were in both the initial invasion in Afghanistan and Iraq. That is a crazy story. So where were you on 9-11? And how did you end up in uh, Pakistan by the end of 2011? So for, us, for us, it wasn't 9-11. I was in Australia, Darwin, Australia, September 12th for us. Um, I was on what's called the Marine Expeditionary Unit. It's three Navy ships full of uh, Marines. We call ourselves America's 911 Force. We're out there holding on the water in case anything happens in the world. We can respond quickly. And that's obviously what happened on September 11th. We had just finished training exercise, joint training exercise with the Australians. It was the last night of liberty for the Marines. Uh, I was in my stateroom with my roommate, and we started getting breaking news updates on her laptop, obviously telling us what happened. And of course, the goal was to get all the Marines back on the ship, because we didn't know what we were saying. Can you imagine trying to get 3,000 Marines back on ship after their last day of liberty in Australia? <laughs> So some were having a fun time out there. So we finally got them on the ship and the ship's captain took us away from port and we immediately went up to, we were supposed to go to uh, Kenya, Singapore, and Thailand for liberty. That was all canceled. Instead we went up uh, off the shores of Pakistan, literally just cut circles in the ship uh, for a few months, a couple months, planning what we were gonna do. Now, Marine Corps amphibious. We attacked from the sea. Well, Afghanistan's a landlocked nation. So how are we going to get ourselves 500 uh, miles inland to Afghanistan? So I think it was on Thanksgiving Day, um, I took an LCAP into uh, Pakistan and a day or two later we were flown into Afghanistan and I did work for then uh, General Mattis and obviously we responded uh, to the terrorist attacks, fighting the Taliban, making sure they weren't able to leave Canada. So Justin, you were also in Afghanistan, but this is this just goes to show how long that conflict lasted. You were there um, over a decade later, in 2013 and 2014. 
Um, and a huge way that the United States was able to sustain that rate of deployments for 10 plus, turning into 20 years, was on relying on the reserves. So can you talk to us a little bit about what, what is that like? Uh, like, how does a reservist deploy? And um, what was your experience like uh, when you went in 2015? Sure. Um, so I think my, my story was a little bit unique. Uh, as a developing officer, uh, at least then, Marine Corps offered for reserve contracted Marines uh, to do an experience tour. Uh, it's a voluntary basis. Um, at that point, I volunteered. I wanted to do, uh, I was given orders for one year, um, active duty orders to Camp Pendleton. Um, and again, mine's a little bit unique. Uh, once I got those orders, I went down to 3rd Amphibious Assault Battalion as an assistant motor transport officer. Uh, and there, my name was, from, from what I understand, kind of picked out of a hat, for lack of a better term. Uh, I was uh, selected for an individual augmentee billet, um, and I started my pre-deployment training on my own. I was attaching to uh, 7th Marines, uh, or also Regimental Combat Team 7. They were already in Afghanistan at that time. And I put myself through uh, my own pre-deployment training, um, and then in April, uh, went forward and, and actually attached with them. Um, I was a material readiness officer over there, um, so, yeah, it was a little bit unique uh, in that I was selected for the deployment. Um, as a reserve, it, it really is, um, I guess the best way to say it is that the, I see the reserves as the Marine Corps or combatant command in Afghanistan's uh, sense. It's that combatant commander's uh, flexibility to fulfill a capability. Um, so that individual or unit, depending on, on what that combatant commander needs, uh, it's, it's provides them the flexibility to fill that capability gap based on the mission and the requirement at hand. So for me, they needed a material readiness officer, and I filled that capability as a logistics officer. Um, and units seemed to deploy, uh, when I was with Echo Company in 2009, they deployed uh, forward Iraq as a full unit. Um, but just recently, uh, within the last few years, uh, 2020, uh, a friend of mine with 4th Recon, he, uh, him and his headquarters staff uh, forward deployed um, as an advise and assist, uh, advise and assist role. Um, so you see full units, uh, and you see individuals as well. So I want to stick on that just for a little bit, because I, I want you to explain something to the audience that I think can be a little bit hard to understand. So you're a civilian on your day-to-day -day job, right? You're a firefighter, you, uh, but then you deploy. What, where's the support system for your family in that kind of situation? How do you balance going back to that civilian job? How do you navigate those challenges of trying to be like a full-time civilian and now you're deploying kind of by yourself to Afghanistan? Uh, you wear many hats. So I, you know, I wear the Marine Corps hat when I'm doing Marine Corps stuff. Um, and I, you know, I have high expectations of myself and those around me, so I do everything I can to meet the uh, requirement that Marine Corps sets for me. Um, that's customs and courtesies, that's uniform, that's uh, performance of my job. That's the Marine Corps hat. And then I have to take that hat off. Uh, and then as a firefighter, I'm, you know, for, for lack of a better term, the, the lowest guy on the totem pole. I'm, I'm a firefighter, I don't manage anyone. Um, and I need to remember that uh, that is my lane as a firefighter. Now I'm wearing the firefighter hat. And 
I'm not in charge of anyone. Um, and I'm there to pull hose, throw ladders, make decisions. Uh, we clean up at, at the end of every tour. Uh, we do a 48 hour tour. Um, and we clean the, the fire station, we clean the toilets, we clean, you know, that there's nothing beneath me on, on either side. So I think to answer your question, it's really just really having to understand and consciously uh, know what hat I'm wearing when I'm hearing it, wearing it. Um, and then you asked about the support network. It really, you know, my, my family is the rock, right? Like my wife and my two kids, they are the ones that are, uh, my kids are in uh, elementary and, and preschool, um, and she brings them to school, takes them home from school, um, and she's she is uh, the rock star. Right? She's the one holding down the home fort uh, while I'm either doing my fire stuff, reserve stuff, uh, whether we deploy or um, do our two-week annual training. I think everyone on this panel has worn a lot of different hats. Um, Kathy, in some ways, I feel like you've worn some of the most amount of hats. I mean, you were a service warfare officer, then you're a meteorologist, you're a Navy reservist, you're a military spouse, you're a veteran, you're a teacher, and um, some of these identities you're balancing at the same time. So how, how do you describe yourself <laughs> to people? And then um, how challenging is that to have all these different kind of identities that you're trying to support all at the same time? It's a good question. Um, you know, Jackie asked me how it, what my tagline should be on my bio, and I would give it some thought. How do I describe myself? Well, I am a Navy veteran. I am an educator. Um, the toughest of all those roles, just to, to pile on there, has definitely been military spouse. When I was active duty Navy, I, I wore a lot of hats on the on the ship. You know, I was a firefighter on the ship. I fought fires. I was Lieutenant Five Block Leader. I drove the ship, I was division officer, all that stuff, but it, it was all under the umbrella of naval officer. I was young, single, no family. When my husband deployed, on the other hand, I was a teacher, I was a parent, I was a wife, uh, Navy reservist, and that was very, very, very difficult. Um, and uh, all that to say, that doesn't really answer your question, but I just want to give an extra shout out to all the military spouses out there. Um, but I actually have, uh, I've, I've been thinking about that question a lot in my own life. I, in the Navy, there's a saying, ship, shipmate self. And what that means is the mission of the ship is the, is the top priority. Then you're looking out for your shipmate and then you're looking out for yourself. And that's a mantra that I, I, I followed throughout all of these roles. You know, I'm first looking out for my community and then my family and, and, and then me. But it, wearing all those hats, I really have largely lost sight of that self piece. I've, I've lived my whole adult life like ship, shipmate, ship, shipmate. So I actually um, was, I left the classroom teaching last summer to be a stay-at-home mom. And I'm now in this kind of pivot point in my life trying to give myself a little time to figure out the answer to that question because I don't know, Jackie. Um, I am, I, I do <laughs> identify as an educator and a Navy veteran and a wife and a mother and all of these things. Um, but, uh, you know, the what one thing most defines me is still uh, still figuring that one out, aren't we all? Well, I think everyone here has had to deal with transition in some way, whether it's the transition in identity or the transition from uh, military to civilian. 
Michaela, you mentioned earlier your nonprofit that you started, Ranger Road, which explicitly helps veterans transition from the military to the civilian life. Um, talk to me a little bit more about what inspired you to do this, and then I'd like to hear a little bit about how you did your transition from Army Ranger um, to serving your community and law enforcement. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I'm gonna do it backwards. I'm gonna talk about my, my transition first. So, uh, like I previously talked about, the stars kind of aligned for me when I was in the military. Everything everything seemed to be going well until some of my Marines were killed. Um, and so, that first incident, uh, just back up a little bit, for those that don't know, Ranger, um, Ranger Battalion is a special ops unit. Uh, while deployed, we do probably, while I was deployed, three to four, um, missions a week and um, <clears throat> what the missions uh, entail are uh, addressing or um, yep let's just say addressing um, high value targets and so the missions are very dangerous uh, very um, in-depth and there's a lot of moving parts and so when you're there you're you're trained to do certain things and um, it's almost second second nature and you kind of understand the process and so, um, until something happens um, and it kind of hits you, then uh, you start thinking about what you're doing, why you're doing it, and how you're going to um, cope with some of the things that you see here and your part. So, when I came out of the military, um, I came out um, shortly after two of my, my friends um, were killed. And I came out of the military and um, I had the opportunity, and I don't know how or why it kind of worked out that way, but I just rolled into straight into law enforcement. I, I came out of the military, didn't, didn't know what I was gonna be doing, but had the opportunity to go to the academy, and then from the academy, um, came to the great greatest city in America, San Mateo, um, which you know, which is a big part of actually the transition phase, and that's why I want to talk about that because having a good environment or um, um, group of friends or coworkers or wherever uh, your family is very, very important because it, they they help you during that transition phase, or at least they help me. My family was supportive. When I came into uh, law enforcement, uh, Chief Mannheimer at the time, and the just San Mateo Police Department was very, very supportive of the uh, uh, military individuals and um, what we were doing. And so having that backbone or that support is, is huge. So what I, um, at one point, um, uh, I started getting a lot of emails and text messages and calls from some of the guys that I served with. And so, and girls, uh, and uh, they were asking, hey, Mikhail, um, they followed me on social media because of my mixed martial arts career and other things that I was doing. They're like, hey, looks like you got a job, you got married, everything seems to be going well. What are you doing different that we're not doing? And I didn't really think about that initially, but then I had some time to think about it. I talked to my wife at that time, and I'm like, hey, what? I don't, I don't get it. Like, what? why are so many veterans asking these or some of my buddies are asking these questions. And so we thought about that, and so we ultimately, you know, a lot more involved there, but ultimately we started a nonprofit Ranger Road, and what we thought would work for a lot of the guys and girls that I, that I uh, knew in the military was putting together events 
and allowing our veterans to work together um, and surrounding ourselves with good people. Very, very important. I know it might not sound like a big deal, but having that camaraderie team building environment is huge. And so that's what we did with Ranger Road. We put together different events, scuba diving, skydiving, fishing, hunting, mountain biking, car racing, you know, a lot of the, these things were, were cool. And uh, you're not gonna tell a veteran, hey, let's go to therapy. They're not gonna do that, a lot of them won't. But, but if we put together an event such as uh, a skydiving event or a car racing event, a lot of people will volunteer, like, hey, I wanna go do that. So when they come out within Ranger Road, what we do is we support those individuals, and then we, not, I wouldn't say weed out, but we select or notice individuals that may have some difficult things that they're addressing or, or uh, difficult life um, circumstances. And so what we do with those individuals, we single them out, we talk to them, figure out what needs they have, and then we streamline them to other nonprofit organizations that can help specifically with those needs. Ranger Road is really good at um, putting events together, having a good time, and finding those individuals. We're not gonna say that we, we are doctors or, or um, psychiatrists that we can help with uh, those issues, but we're good at finding those individuals and pushing them in the right direction and helping them. And so that's very, very, very important. Um, a lot of vets won't raise their hand, but they will when it's fun. It's something having having a good time and then getting the ball rolling in the right direction. Well, that's great because actually we're uh, we have some people in the audience here today who have actually built a, a, a nonprofit that helps specifically with mental health. So it's these, those type of people that you've identified and then works directly with them to get them the mental health support they need. Um, all of these panelists um, have had different experiences in the military, chose to serve for different reasons, their path to civilian life was different, but what they all have in common is a desire to serve. Um, whether that be in law enforcement, the judiciary, firefighting, education, they continue to serve just kind of more locally um, than their military service. So Mike, I want to ask you, um, kind of transitioning to your civilian life now, you preside over a criminal court that includes offenders that, um, that have drug issues, mental health issues, and it's your job as a judge to punish, but also to figure out how you rehabilitate and how you get people back on the right path. Uh, is that, are, do you have any lessons from the Marines that you take into that? Like, is that similar or is it different? Have you had to learn kind of new skills as you've transitioned into that? Uh, phase of your civilian life? Well, obviously, being a Marine is sometimes a lot different than being a judge. And in some ways, I do find it's very similar. I think being a Marine Reservist makes me a better judge, and I think being a judge makes me a much better Marine leader. For both jobs, it's all about the institution and upholding the standards of the institution and how you meet them. So even if it's not necessarily how you want to make a decision, you always have to uphold what's best for the institution and kind of be that leader. So I find if you have that empathy, but you also hold people accountable and have those standards. I tell my Marines all the time, don't get upset when we enforce the standards that you signed up for. And I try to do the same as a judge with defendants by showing some empathy, understanding there's gonna be some issues, but also trying to encourage them to get their lives back on track. I'm sure you can imagine when it comes, I try to do the same standards with the attorneys. I'm sure between the Marines and the attorneys, you can guess which ones are better at upholding the standards that they signed up for. <laughs> well, 
Well, I think you bring up something that we've actually been dealing with a lot at Hoover, um, which is trust in our American institutions. Um, you're talking about trust in the judiciary and that institution, but we've also seen that across America, a decline in trust for um, the, the military even, public education, even the police, we've had these kind of real challenges with how we rebuild trust with these institutions. And yet, all of them are serving in these institutions, working every day to keep Americans safe, to educate our children, um, to defend democracy, to basically build the next generation of Americans. So I want to transition to talking a little bit about what role you think veterans play in helping to rebuild trust in American institutions. And Kathy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn to you to once again talk about the statistical outlier thing. Because um, it's knowing people who serve that generally builds trust and makes people want to serve. So what role do you think you played as a teacher in you know, rebuilding trust or relationships with the next generation? And, and what do you think that we should do to rebuild the linkages between civilian and military, Gen Z and you know, the outgoing generations to um, kind of rebuild trust um, between civil and military? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, as, as Congresswoman Spear gave us that 7% statistic, I was, I was thinking to myself, I wonder what that number is for San Mateo County. I bet it is less than 7%. This is not a huge, anybody know? No. <laughs> it's, it's, it's probably less than 7%. It's not a big military community. Um, when I started teaching, I was in Norfolk, Virginia. I was a, a military spouse, so I moved around a lot. And my husband at the time was uh, stationed in Norfolk. And uh, when I taught there, you know, half of the teachers in the school were military. And maybe a quarter of my students had military family members, a big military town, um, very different magnitude of impact that my service had as a teacher. Um, I, you know, this question makes me think about, I, when you asked me earlier why I served and gave you a number of reasons, there was always that one, one thing in the back of my mind as I was thinking about the Navy, um, was my very favorite teacher in high school, I'll give a shout out to Dr. Fritz, my 10th grade biology teacher, was a Navy man, a submariner, and then went into teaching. And submarines, by the way, um, those are boats. I was gonna check. I, uh, if I had to do it over, though, I, they now they now let women on submarines, and I think if I were joining now, I I would do that. Um, I got to do three days on a submarine when I was a midshipman on one of my summer tours. You know, they you, they give you a taste of each branch of the Navy, and uh, submarines are pretty cool. But anyway, uh, <laughs> back to answering the question. So Dr. Fritz was a big influence on me. I was I grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut, not a big military town, not a lot of military. And, but hearing his stories, it you know painted this picture for me of service and adventure and science and um, lots of cool opportunities. And I think that you know teachers have the the pleasure of being one of those many role models in young people's lives. Um, you know. High schoolers, they've got their parents, but teachers, coaches, there are a lot of adult role models. And if, you know, I, I have two teenagers myself, and if they just get like one little nugget of something to contribute to their value set as they become adults um, from each of those many role models, I think that's that's a big win. And I'm, I'm not gonna venture to say that 
I've inspired you know, all of my probably over a thousand students I've taught to, to consider a military career, but I do think that talking about it and being open and available as a resource for students is huge um, if we can get veterans in, in, in yeah, the Yeah, and I, I will say, just based on my very um, academic perusal of LinkedIn um, and teacher and veteran in our county, you may be it. And so, and then from my understanding also, there was a program called Troops for Teachers that was um, meant to help set, um, set up veterans to work in education, but actually um, has lost funding. Um, so unfortunately, at a time when we're, so, we're suffering with recruitment issues, um, I think there are less and less veterans who are moving into education. Um, Justin, I, I'm sorry, I'm gonna harp on the reserve thing again, but this is a pet, it's a pet bugaboo for me. So as a citizen Marine, what role do you think that the reserves plays in building trust between civilian and military in American society? I think the best way to answer that is <clears throat> just from the experience I've had with uh, the reserve component particularly, and I think it's just that community outreach. It's putting yourselves and ourselves out into the community. Uh, right now we're doing Toys for Tots, um, but we do other events, car washes, to, uh, to generate money for record ball funds. We will host uh, job fairs at the reserve units. I think it's just it's that awareness level. It's that um, putting ourselves out there to be vulnerable and to make those connections. Because you know it's all about knowing people and uh, making connections and genuine connections. I think that that'll create that trust uh, and build a better community. And the last thing on trust, Mikhail. This is actually a really difficult question, and one that has come up in all of the conversations with veterans that I've had. So I think one of the comments we hear when we ask people about why they don't want to serve um, or they don't connect with the military is that there is a perception that veterans are inherently wounded and struggling. And because of that, that can dissuade people from serving, and it can also dissuade people from hiring veterans or treating veterans as different in a way where they um, are, you know, a bane on society instead of um, a net good. But you've worked a lot with wounded veterans. So how do you think society should deal with wounded veterans? And then what do people need to know about the value of veterans, um, not despite their experience in combat, but like what that actually, what value that provides? Um, well, that's a lot of, there's a, <coughs> Couple of questions in, in there. So let me let me do it this way. Um, so when and this is I think every veteran or every individual here may have a different way of um, you know, different perspective on this. My my personal uh, experience and, and and way of answering those questions is while in Ranger Battalion we were taught numerous leadership type. We went through a lot of different leadership training courses and we were taught what to do, how to do it, and why. And so as long as we're, uh, most of the veterans, the guys that, that, and gals that I've served with that, we, that have come out, um, they're taking their experience in the military, where they, whether they were deployed or not, and depending, you know, their job, uh, MOS, which is what job they did while in the military, a lot of the, uh, a lot of that it, it rolls into everyday type of stuff that we're able to accomplish in, uh, in civilian world. For example, um, 
I rolled into being a police officer here in San Mateo. Um, never thought that I would be a police officer. I, I never, never thought about that. So when I came out of the uh, military, got into law enforcement, it appeared to me that um, the community here in San Mateo was very supportive of, of our, our uh, military. And so that helped my transition phase. And so some of the folks that come out of the military do have different injuries and different things that they go through, but having that core backbone or the support system, um, I think is very, very important. Um, we do deal with my nonprofit with a lot of individuals that are going through difficult times. And for the most part, I don't have the percentage, but for the most part, individual, individuals that we deal with, um, as long as we support them and push them in the right direction and assist them in what uh, strengths and weaknesses that they have, they're able to take that and run with it. And so, um, in a nutshell, maybe the way I could answer it is, um, having the support system or having folks or individuals or a company or, or maybe organizations uh, set up to be able to assist folks that have different uh, needs is crucial, but um, veterans coming out of the military, transitioning into society nowadays, um, is almost, um, I don't wanna say easy, but it seems like um, you're not getting shot at, you're not, there's no bombs, no grenades or anything like that, easy day. Uh, if the chief uh, asks me to do something and I'm like, well, that's easy, ma'am. Um, now it's gonna be sir, but um, I'm not getting shot at, no one's yelling at me, I just need to assist those civilians here in San Mateo and do the job correctly and uh, help those in need, it's an easy day. Well, I want to turn to audience questions, and I'm going to summarize a few. And Mike, I'm going to make you take them. Um, so I'm going to take all these questions. And all those Marine Corps digs, but our intelligence? I don't think I said, I think I said there's just too many Marines. Not that y'all weren't smart. Um, so I think there are two sides of this veteran question. One side is, what can civilian communities do to help veterans? And the other side is, what can veterans do to help their communities? Uh, you wanna take it either side of that question? Sure, I think for the communities just to reach out and get to know your veterans. Uh, especially I think in a county like this where we have less of them, I do think a lot of our veterans do not feel connected to their community. So just get to know their stories. From the veteran standpoint, it's to uphold the, especially in a time of great partisan divide and our country being divided, it's the veterans' responsibility to continue living by the core values that we were taught uh, in whatever service that we join and be contributing members of our society. I often tell my Marines in the reserves that you represent the Marine Corps past, present, and future to your community because they often don't know Marines. So how you handle yourself represents the entire Marine Corps to your community and to take that very seriously. Also, I'd say just real quick on the reserve issue, having some reservists up here, to understand what reservists do. I was looking at some statistics earlier, 400,000 Marine reservists uh, were in World War II. Three of the six service members that raised the flag at Mount Saravachi and Iwo Jima were reservists. 50% of all Marines that served in Korea were reservists. And the Marine Corps activated almost two-thirds of its reserves during Desert Storm. So we're not just out there on the weekends thinking you're having a great time. We're ready and training and trying to deploy be ready for deployment in a short period of time. So honor their service too. We call it the irrational call to service, the sacrifices that they have to make, but to understand what they do and be supportive. 
Well, I, we have about five minutes, and I, I like to save this for the questions that you guys didn't know you were gonna get, uh, in what I call a lightning round. So the way the lightning round works is I give you guys uh, some questions that are uh, funny, and some questions that require a dissertation. And you have the same amount of time to answer both the dissertation questions and the funny questions. Um, so I'm gonna start with Kathy, and we'll start the questions, and then we'll go back around for the second round. Okay, so if you were in charge of the DOD for a day, what is one change you would make? <laughs> you know, okay, I'm gonna try to be concise with this, but just a little snippet of a, with a night educator hat. When I was a swell with surface warfare officer, most of the training was on the job. Prior to me being a SWO, there was a school you went to, and then you became a SWO, and then, and then there was another school you went to, and there's various different iterations of how training works. Um, in my experience, the on-the-job training is all the best. I, I would reconfigure some of the training funding to maximize the opportunities of on-the-job training, because all of those, even the two-week, three-week, the schools, they were way less useful. So you're not in it for like CBTs only? CBTs guys are computer-based training, and for us sitting here, we've all done hours and hours and hours of clicking of computer-based training. So you're no for computer-based training. Um, yeah, you know, there's a place for it, but <laughs> yes. All right, Justin, if you're in charge of the DOD Friday. Uh, as I was listening to her answer, I, I think the best thing I got is I'm currently in um, command and staff, which is uh, oh, I'm sorry. A, <laughs> which is a uh, a school for my current rank. Um, I'm learning a lot, and I would say formalize education uh, at each rank, both enlisted and, and officer, uh, to get that global perspective. Well, as someone who's highly overeducated, I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right, if you're in charge of the DoD for a day, what is one change you would make? I was thinking about this. Um, a lot of what was already said is, uh, I can piggyback off of that, but I think that putting someone in charge um, that has maybe a little bit more experience and maybe, uh, and not maybe not the experience level, but um, pull, um, uh, to be able to educate individuals and um, send the money where and when it's needed correctly. It's just, it's, uh, uh, to keep stay away from politics is just going to be a difficult way of addressing that. Yeah, well, the next town hall will be asking uh, Jim Mattis the same question, so that'll be fun. <laughs> Mike? Yeah, I don't know if my answer's that great, but I would break down the barriers to the acquisition process oh, and uh, probably invest more in innovation and technology. You see all the great things happening in Silicon Valley in the commercial sector to make sure we have more of those type of items uh, for our military. Okay. Coming back around, Giants or the A's? I'm sorry? Giants or the A's? I grew up five minutes from Kingston Park. My entire office is full of Giants things, so I can bore you about Giants stats all day, Giants. All right, Giants or the A's? A's. Oh. Giants. You go St. Louis Cardinals. No, between the two, the Giants. Seems like the same bet here. I still remember 1987 when the Cardinals beat the Giants. <laughs> All right, I'm going to start with you, Mikhail. Best place to be stationed? Fort Lewis, Washington. All right. Camp Pendleton. Camp Pendleton. 
Monterey, California. I also am a big fan of Monterey. All right, uh, okay, Justin, should we reinstate the draft? Uh, <laughs> Told you, some of these are no. dissertation level. No, okay. Reinstate as in, I mean, I still have to check a box saying that I'm not a male born after 1959. Why does that box exist? Yeah, I served on a commission that, that talks about that, but so, so you're yes for draft? I mean, <laughs> for women and men? Checking the box, sure. <laughs> No? Absolutely not. All right. Uh, Mike, what is the one thing you did in your military service that you're most proud of? Honestly, people ask me why I still serve in the reserves. It's because of people like this, just serving with amazing uh, human beings, men and women. Trust me, your military is a good one. I'm going to keep it short. Um, we had an incident, um, the firefight in Afghanistan, um, we had different situations and a lot of moving parts. There was a, a young man, um, and not to paint a, a huge picture, uh, he was he was wounded. And we had an opportunity, I had an opportunity to uh, pull him to a situation in an area, a safe area, and then uh, we ended up evacuating him. So I never, never forget that. It was a really um, difficult situation, but it all panned out well. He was okay, I was okay, everybody made it home all right, and so um, that was one of the things that I, I always think about. Awesome. Justin? Uh, just to piggyback on what Colonel Winley said was um, that spending that time, that camaraderie, uh, but then being given the responsibility and the trust to lead Marines particularly um, it is, is outstanding. Um, I mean, that responsibility is big and take it seriously. Yeah, I, I'm going to feedback on, on all of this too and say, you know, I, did, I didn't, back to the beginning, I didn't serve because my parents served, but uh, my my dad was colorblind and couldn't serve and I, I think he would have if he could have and um, I am just really proud that I was able to, you know, serve for, on behalf of my family, my community, yeah. my country. All right, coming back at you, Phil's or Starbucks? So... My husband briefly was a professional coffee espresso caterer, <laughs> and we now have like, a, a, the effect of that is we have even better coffee and coffee machine on my kitchen counter. So I'm only super coffee snob, but I'm gonna go with Phil's. Okay. Phil's. Okay. Pete's coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Some of these people know I'm a coffee club member at 7-Eleven. <laughs> Coast, you're going to get a nice coffee from Dunkin'. <laughs> All right. Okay. Last, and I'll start with you, Mike. What is the one thing you want civilians to know about serving in the military? That we're not victims. Uh, some people do come back hurt, but they're not victims. And uh, just to respect that they serve for the reasons that they want to serve, and we're very fortunate to have such a strong military comprised of amazing men and women. Yeah, military is a volunteer base. Uh, you sign up. And uh, I signed up, and everybody signed up because they wanted to give back, they wanted to serve the country. Um, the worst thing that most civilians can do is feel sorry for us. Don't feel sorry. I work with a lot of amputee guys and girls that are, are hurt. They always tell me, I hate it when people look at me and, and treat me differently. I'm like, nah, they're trying to help out. So just uh, treat them like, like a normal person, and uh, that's it, that's it. 
Um, from the reserve side of the house, um, we're, we're, not, we're not Marines or military members two days out of the month. We're uh, military members all 30 days. We hold ourselves to that standard all 30 days. Um, so yeah. I think if you're in the in an organization that's trying to hire somebody who can do anything and do it quickly and efficiently and correctly, you should look at veterans. There, we're in Silicon Valley. There are a lot of startups that that only want to hire people with startup experience because it's a fast-paced environment. I think you should also look at veterans. Well, I want to thank you all for being here, but because when we started this, what I really wanted to do was tell the stories of people like us. And to have you guys in this room today, to sit here and listen to these stories, it means a lot to me. We talked a little bit about kind of what veterans need. There's a bunch of policies and things that veterans need. But I actually think what veterans would like more than anything is to be heard. They, they want to tell their story. They want to tell you why they serve. They want to tell you about their experience. And so today, you gave us an hour and a half of your lives to listen to these stories. And so I want to thank you. Um, I also want to thank, in particular, um, Lisa here at the Elks Lodge. Thank you. Um, thank you uh, to John, who set up this extraordinary uh, background. Um, thank you. Uh, we have Devour Cupcakes from Milbray in the back. That, that was from the good of their heart. Thank you. I, I'm ready. I'm jumping in. <laughs> um, thank you to the Lady Elks for um, the water, and then I want to thank our, our Hoover team who has been um, supporting this initiative from the very beginning, um, and uh, keep following us. We'll be posting this online. And um, thank you again, and please stay, talk, enjoy the delicious um, coffee um, and refreshments that we've been provided. Thank you all.